This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And this is Jacob Brass with Longleaf Fertilia, and you are listening to the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy. Are we gone? We're going. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> this is episode 149 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I am Jacob Rotz with Longleaf Reptilia. I'm Justin Smith, Palmetto Coast Exotics. And today we are joined by the, the one and great Dr. 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 Ben Morrow. How you doing, Ben? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. For sure. So if you listen to the show for, I guess, since the first year, um, we had been on back in March, uh, December of 2018. That was episode yeah. 21. So you were one of our first guests. I think we did, what, five to ten episodes with no guest. Then we started getting guests on after that. Yeah. Something like that. So yeah. one of the OGs, <laughs> So yeah. as, the, as the kids would say. Obviously, <laughs> a lot has changed since then, you know, both on our end and <clears throat> we figured it would be a, a great opportunity to catch up and see what's new because, you know, at the time when we did the first episode, you were still hadn't figured out doing the testing, genetic testing for, you know, boas and pythons and stuff. And I know some things have, have changed since and updated. Um, let's see. So he was. Yeah, you were like one of the our first like 10 guests, I think yeah. we ever had. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. So, yeah, I mean, I guess before sort of we get into what's new, but a sort of a brief for people that didn't catch that episode or don't know what uh, Rare Genetics Inc. is, you know, what is it? What is it all about? Yeah, so uh, I, like many people listening, I'm sure, always been chasing snakes and lizards and just love that ever since I as far back as I can remember. Um, and then, uh, through high school and college, I had some opportunities to do some research in in herp species. And, uh, and as, as a PhD student, I ended up doing a dissertation on the quantitative genetic traits, reproductive traits in ball pythons. So I was able to work with a bunch of data from Dan and Colette Sutherland, uh, from the snake keeper TSK and, uh, do that my dissertation on ball python reproductive genetics <clears throat> and when i graduated uh ended up getting a job and moving across the country and once i finally kind of settled into a new job and and uh being in a new place with kids and everything took a little bit but once that all happened um i is actually about the same time that the complete carpet python came out and Justin and uh, Nick were off in Australia doing awesome things. And I was here trying to get my head back together after the move and everything and ended up going to Tinley. And at Tinley, uh, that was kind of the, the book, the first book release, uh, mm -hmm. big book release in the U.S. was at Tinley. And uh, so I met up with uh, Sean Christian. He's the person that ran the Morelia uh, Python Forum. Um, he was the, the second person that owned it. He's the one that ran it for a while. And 
And uh, so we had talked on there quite a bit and I talked with him and we had this idea to be able to start some genetic testing in, in reptile species. And the thing that we wanted to do the most was get a sex determination test for green tree pythons. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of started working from there with different ideas. I did lots of reading and thinking and trying and ordering primers and sequencing and doing different things. And uh, we ended up doing some, some, uh, large, uh, a large sequencing project using RadSeq to be able to narrow down where the, the actual sex determining sequences in the, in the green tree python and, and ball python. We were looking at both just mm -hmm. to kind of get an idea for pythons in general. And we went from the 65 million base pairs that's on the sex chromosome and pythons down to about one, one million. And so wow. we made progress, but yeah, still... that, that's a huge <laughs> jump though. Yeah. Like it sounds like a lot, like a million, but when you think <laughs> it went from 65. Yes. Yeah, one is cool. much better than 65. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's been difficult um, since during that time uh, at the beginning of all that, it was kind of assumed that all snakes were ZW sex chromosomes, mm -hmm. but with the ball Python, uh, mutations the banana and the coral glow and people kind of thinking through it it became pretty obvious that they must be xy which just means that the the species that has two different sex chromosomes is um is the male in xy so like in humans male has an x and a y whereas in birds the the sex that has two different sex chromosomes is the female the female is zw where the male is ZZ. And so that makes a difference with, you know, w when we're trying to figure out the sex determination test. And so that was kind of a big thing that changed. Um, we realized uh, Warren Booth was one of the authors on that paper mm -hmm. and they published that. And so our, uh, our RADSeq data backed up what he said, some of the same scaffolds in the Burmese Python genome on that sex chromosome are ones that, that we pulled up as being important. But anyway, it's, it's been difficult to nail down the exact sequence and therefore difficult to design a test. Uh, so in the meantime, I figured out a way to sequence parts of the, the sex chromosome and be able to follow through the lineage. So if I had a the sire's shed and the grandsire's shed, and then all the offspring, I'd be able to follow through markers that are on the, the grandsire's shed, the sire's shed, and then any babies that have that same marker I know are males. And then mm -hmm. any babies that don't have that marker I would know are females. And so it was a little more difficult way to do it, but some green tree python breeders uh, were interested in that even though it costs a little bit more and took a little bit more time it was worthwhile to them so i've been able to do some sex determination in green tree pythons but it's been difficult um but now the most recent stuff and during that time i started doing colubrid sex determination and, mm -hmm. and venomous snakes and that works great that's really easy much more straightforward yeah so they they do have zw sex chromosomes and the Z and the W are way different in, in pythons and boas, the X and Y are very similar in size, not uh, okay. like humans. Mm. And so that similar, very similar X and Y, it's much more difficult to design a test because they are so similar. There's no differences. It's like trying to tell the difference between 
really light pink and really, really light pink mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> instead yeah. of the difference between red and, and green. Right. Um, and so it's, it's been difficult, but yeah, the cluebirds and, and venomous snakes, it's worked great. Um, I, after a couple of, uh, probably about a year, year and a half. Uh, uh, so I've been doing the, the colubrid stuff for about three years and about a year and a half into that. Um, I was able to design a new, um, you know, it's a very, very awesome, broad, uh, primer set that does a great job across all these colubrids and then to also be able to do venomous and i had a problem for a little while with tricolor hogs and with dry mark on uh, with indigos um, but now i have it tweaked and and set up so that it does all, all the venomous and all of the uh colubrids that i've tested mm-hmm. so far it works great so it's really really nice and so we have lots of samples come in. Um, we have samples come in on all the time and, and that, that test is going great. But the, the most recent thing that's exciting, uh, which I've posted a little bit, anyone that's looked at our social media, um, we uh, found out there's a, a ball python keeper. He's also part of the Hudson Alpha Institute, Bio, Biotechnology Institute. And they're a nonprofit that does a lot of uh, genome sequencing and they also have a new uh, piece of software called Khufu that is specifically designed to be able to pull out small differences, genetic differences, all the way down to like a single base change between wow. pools of samples. So if we have 50 males and 50 females of a species, um, the software is really good at pulling that out and being able to give us the sex determining sequence. And then also for morphs, so for ball pythons, we've already started collecting samples and sent some in and we're working on uh, being able to sequence and pull out and map where the specific mutations are that cause these color and pattern pattern changes in in reptiles. And we're starting with ball pythons, but we'll quickly go from that uh, uh, to other species as well is the plan. And what's the, like the benefit of being able to find out the location of that. Then we can design a test. So um, right now there's a a group of researchers in Canada and then also Eastern Michigan university that have done some of this work. And from that, I now have a test that I can do. So someone can send me a shed from a poshet pied ball Python, and I can run that and tell them whether it's, it's het pied or not. Het pied. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So oh. then we'd eventually be able to do that okay. for all of the different mutations, yeah. sunset, yeah. desert ghost, clown, any possets that you have, you can send a shed in and we'll be able to tell you which genes it actually has and things like yellow good. belly. Like, you yeah. know, if you have a five gene animal, you don't know whether it has yellow belly or not. Oh, essentially, essentially we'd have a test. You just send it in. What what the the goal in the long run is is to have thirty or forty of the most common genes, the most common mm-hmm. mutations in ball pythons, and to be able to have it be you know fairly affordable. Don't know mm-hmm. for sure what that price would be, but you'd essentially pay for a panel, and so we would let you know what that panel of thirty mutations are, thirty genes are, and you pay that amount, send the shed in, and then we'll just tell you of those thirty whether it's pet for it or homozygous for it. So if you don't know if it's an OD or a super OD, we'll be able to tell you which it is. 
that's a awesome. serious game changer mm -hmm. for the hobby man yeah. that i didn't think that would even be remotely possible but yeah. you know that's perfect you know especially for guy you know especially if you look at the ball python community and and the corn snake community now you know mm -hmm. there's so many morphs out there you know like i have a pair of corns that are het for like four or five different things you know yep. so whenever i produce them i'm not gonna know what the heck i'm looking at you know between all these morphs and stuff so having that outlet to be able to tell you exactly what your snake has you know that's amazing in and of itself but the fact you'll be able to determine a possible het that's even that's even more you know incredible yeah. that that's that's amazing yeah, we're very excited. It's been fun. There's a lot of a lot of people interested and and uh, you know willing to donate money. We have a GoFundMe going now, and if you guys are willing to post that link, that'd be great. Um, but anyone that wants to help yeah. donate some money um, to that GoFundMe, that's going to go directly to the sequencing costs. And like I said, the first few that we're going to be doing is going to be ball python focused. But if you contribute to that GoFundMe. Let me know if it's, you know, you're mostly interested in sex determination and in pythons, or if you're most interested in Western hognose or whatever, we'll definitely be paying attention to those donations and the notes that come with them. And, you know, wherever we see the most interest, that's the next species we'll go to. Nice. Well, what's the probability? So with some condors and carpets, you know, cancer is kind of a big thing. Is there any hopes that eventually you could have like something that basically gives you just a, a rundown of sex whatever genes it might have going on morph wise and then potential you know uh, heritable you know health issues um, that's certainly possible uh, we do it in humans there are specific tests for mm -hmm. like like uh you know specific types of cancer and and we know in humans which ones are most likely to be heritable and and things like that um, so yeah, certainly if, if the, the work gets done and we know what sequences make a, an individual more likely to, to get cancer, it, it, you know, in snakes or any of the species that certainly could be developed that we could have a, a test that would tell you that. Hmm. That's wow. So it kind of sounds like the sky's the limit with where you guys are going with this, man. That's, that's, that's truly incredible. Everything you've got going on in the works. Yeah, it's a it's a cool time with, you know, the the crowdfunding that's available now and the sequencing costs are coming down quite a bit. Good. In two, 2000, I was a undergrad and I remember being in biochemistry class and they were talking about the human genome sequencing project and it was taking years and costing millions of dollars. And now uh, there is a an article just this week in Stanford. They just did the the fastest whole human genome sequencing to be able to diagnose somebody and they did it and it was like eight and a half hours. They, wow. they sequenced the entire human genome and, and were able to give a, a genetic uh, diagnosis for a patient in you know, less than 10 hours. <laughs> that's pretty wow. crazy. Yeah. And the, the costs have come down. So you can very pretty easily get a decent whole genome sequence done for a thousand dollars. And in the next few years, they think they'll get that down to a hundred dollars. Wow. Hmm. So it's a completely different ball game than millions of dollars in several years. Right. Yeah. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. So as far as green trees though, have people have, I want to say Bill Stiegel maybe had posted mm -hmm. some pictures of some sheds that he had sent you. Uh, I mean, has anything changed with the sex determination as far as those go? Right like now, you... right now, no, it's still okay. a little more of a pain, like for the, the uh, colubrids and, yeah. and, and venomous that, 
is a very simple test. So that's $16 a test for the green trees where I have to do the sequencing and I have to compare multiple mm -hmm. generations. That's $50. So five zero. So it's more expensive, more, more of a, a difficulty. And whoever's submitting the sheds, they have to have, you know, the, not only the offspring they want to sex, but the sire and either the grandsire or a known male offspring from that same sire. I just have to have a way to track the markers right. on that Y chromosome. Okay. So, yeah, so that's still the same, but um, I will have um, an Ian Bissell and some other people have given me sheds. I'm going to have some green tree python sheds uh, in one of these first big runs with Hudson Alpha when that happens. And so I'm hopeful in the next two to three months we'll have some python sex determination tests going. Awesome. Uh, our buddy Jason Keller actually talking about venomous. Um, he's big into heloderma and he... Mm -hmm. uh, he his question was uh this was added to the outline sort of later in the day but um figuring out the gender of heloderma or lizards in general yeah so heloderma are definitely on my list um varanids um also blue tongue skinks all of those are ones that that i would like to do uh, i don't know if we'll be able to get to them this year but with the you know decreasing sequencing costs and then Hudson Alpha helping with their software, the the Kufu, uh, it'll be much more likely and definitely much faster. So with something like, you know, lizards or, you know, or basically anything, you know, lizard wise. Yeah, and again, since y'all aren't doing it, I don't expect you to know the answer for a fact, but it seemed like it seems like it would be much more difficult because lizards shed in pieces, you know, type deal, or they rip it off with their mouths. I know Just a lot like of geckos. Yeah, I know. Well, I know Just a lot of geckos. Everywhere. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, would that be a situation where you just get as many pieces as you can and send them off? Or is it like, no, it has to be like a ventral piece? You know what I mean? Like a, a spot from a certain part of the body or does it matter? Or can it just yeah. be one single strand of shed, you know? or So, so what I have um, on, on our website as far as like instructions when people want to send in sheds, the kind of rule of thumb I give is to try to give us a piece about the size of a quarter. Mm -hmm. um, from that that big a piece of shed, I can do uh, probably 30 to 40 extractions. Wow. So the size of a quarter is a lot. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if it's, you know, in multiple pieces. Um, really, I'm, I'm using a piece probably about the size of the top of a number two pencil eraser. Mm-hmm. So wow. even smaller than that most of the time. So, so yeah, even if you have just small pieces, um, if mm -hmm. you want to find it on the website, if you go to um, how to submit, yeah, right there. So how to submit samples. And I've got a, an FAQ in this section as well that kind of gives you some, some answers to frequently asked questions. But yeah, the size of a quarter is, is plenty. So I have lots of people that will send me you know, the full shed from adults, you know, large colubrids and they, I'm only using a little tiny piece. <laughs> yeah. Dang. Well, that's good to know. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Cause I know like with geckos, I can only imagine it being a little bit more difficult because, you know, I know leopard geckos and I believe crusties eat their sheds mm -hmm. normally mm -hmm. like they'll rip them off and just eat them. So I know that yep. you have to kind of catch it at the right, uh, right time. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That definitely could be more, more complicated. I haven't had to try to take sheds from, from lizards. I know 
sometimes you'll see lizards. They'll have, you know, little pieces of skin, kind of a stuck shed going on. Right, right. Um, so that would be easy to just pluck off a little bit, you know, in, in the case like that. But even if you're finding some, if, if it's in a dry area of the cage, the, the thing that is the biggest problem is when you have wet, um, wet conditions, if the shed is exposed to moisture for a prolonged period, then it degrades ah. the DNA. Oh, I but as you. long as they're in a dry section of the cage, like in the bedding or whatever, and it's dry, then most likely, and you know, it came from that animal. If there's two that had been in there breeding or whatever, and you don't know which one it's from, obviously you can't use that, but yeah. Well, we know plenty of people with heliderma that can probably send in some, some sheds I'm reading here. We know y'all are looking for, samples of known gender to yes. uh, contribute to the cause i've my ackies i'm i'm fairly certain are a pair but if i ever get a solid um idea of what the gender is on those i'll send in something for for those as well sounds good yeah no, no, I, like, no, like i said i'm right now i i wouldn't i mean you people certainly can send them in especially if they're known gender um but like I said, I don't know for sure when I'll be able to focus on that. Mm. It would be nice if it was kind of the second part of second half of this year, if I could start working with some of those, but I just don't know how all of the, the morph stuff is going to go and how long that's going to take. Right. There's just so much stuff to do and no time to do it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The, the reptile hobby is so there's so many different aspects to this hobby, you know, and everybody, everybody's going to want their aspect looked at, you know, because this is such a, a niche, you know, thing that you're, you're doing here, you know, and, and I know everybody's going to want to be, you know, a part of it somehow. So the lizard guys are going to be like, focus more on lizards. And then the morph guys are like, no, keep going with the morphs, you know, and <laughs> so I can only imagine. But I, I am trying to decide. Um, working on the first lizard project right now um with panther chameleons okay and so they uh some of the panther chameleon keepers uh, got together and raised money to be able to develop a test to uh tell the lo locality oh, for wow. panther chameleons so i i didn't know very much about about panther chameleons before that but uh, ends up that there's this really cool study. They there's some researchers that went to Madagascar and they collected across you know the whole range of panther chameleons. They collected I think it was like 330 blood draws from wild chameleons and they took pictures of them and have locality data. So they have not only the coloration in a picture but they also have locality data and they got DNA and then they uh, sequenced and published all of that information. So the, that's a huge step to being able to develop a test to tell a locality or some kind of purity or something like mm -hmm. that, because we have three over 300 known wild um, uh, samples that I have sequenced for, mm -hmm. and I can align any, any uh, Panther chameleon samples coming in. I can align them to those and then put it in the, the groups that, that this uh, publication they uh, came up with that, for, with the from the dna sequence so so that is one lizard project that's going and and looks good they did get uh the money together and they're collecting sheds and i've been doing a literature review and coming up with the game plan and i think within the next month they'll probably send sheds in and we'll get the first testing done and it'll be interesting to see if the captive chameleons uh, you know how many of them look like they you know have similar 
yeah. sequences as the wild, uh, right. play, you know, the wild locate localities, or if that looks like there's a lot of mixing that's happened. And so it'll be interesting. And the females are, are pretty Brown regardless of where they're from. And so it's difficult. You have to trust the exporters that they're telling you the truth. And right. so it'll be really interesting to see how that all shakes out. So with, with the locality thing in mind, do you think that's something you could work towards with carpet pythons as well? Because that's a, that's a huge thing in, in the carpet world of, you know, is oh, yeah. my, is my jungle pure? is my coastal pure? you know, it's a little easier with, you know, pop wins cause we can still get them imported, you know, but even those, those have been crossed in all types of yeah. things. So or I even, think, I think that alone in the carpet community would be huge, yeah. you know, being able to, cause there's, you know, I think of like a lot of the diamond lines, you know, specifically, mm. you know, there's always talk of, you know, some of these diamond lines having jungle blood in them. There's people fighting about it, you know, horrendously. <laughs> I'm not into either one. So it, it doesn't bother me at all, yeah. but I know that could be very, very helpful for a lot of people in the carpet community. Yes. Yeah. So I haven't looked at the, the literature specifically um i would have to look into that and see we ha we have to have dna information from wild caught yeah you, know, like that base you have to have yeah you have to have that base that's why we're, they're so lucky with the panther chameleons that someone right. went out and took that many i mean right. just doing 330 blood draws from wild lizards i imagine <laughs> that took a lot of time yeah, especially because they're from all over that you know all over madagascar yeah um so yeah i would i would just have to look and see and then what access we would have to like zoo samples or you know other people that would have ones that have locality data but as long as we can get kind of that that footprint of what what they look like in the wild and we know what their locations are then yeah we could definitely develop a test and and you know people that post what is what is my carpet we could give them kind of like when people say yeah. you know send in a sample from their new puppy they got and they find out what percent you know this exactly. breed and that breed yeah um, that's definitely doable we just have to have good wild caught samples to compare to well if anybody i know we have some listeners in australia so if any y'all field herpers out there got any ideas get with uh dr ben over here and uh, get get some going with that in the future. That would be cool, man. That would I be think great. It would, I think it would be really helpful with the bamboo rats. It'd be a really helpful with a lot of stuff, Just man. Because the there you have so many people that are into the locality specific stuff, you know, like myself, and you know, being able to determine the purity of that would is huge. Yeah, but the bamboo rats in particular, those get crisscrossed a lot, and they're very hard yeah. to tell tell you know, apart from one another, especially if you have hybrids. Right. Because they were just talking about that on uh on Colubrid and Colubroid Radio with Rob. Mm -hmm. And that's always been one of the reasons like I haven't gotten into bamboo rats is because like if I get something I want it to be one one thing. I don't want it to be crossed. And mm -hmm. you know, there's just a lot of crosses out there. Yeah. In that group. <clears throat> um Yep, it's all possible, and it's getting cheaper and and more more doable. So it's it's at a point now where, like with the chameleon project specifically, um, where I knew we already had some DNA data um, with five thousand dollars that they saved up, we're able to you know do the literature review, get sample or get uh, primers ordered, and be able to test the first twenty five samples and. 
you know, kind of get, get on our feet and, you know, maybe we'll find out we need to do some more tweaking to that test. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. expect it to be perfect right off the bat, but same with any of these other projects, especially if there's some, some good data that's already, and with a lot of the species, there are publications from researchers that have done some sequencing. And so there may be some other species that would be pretty fast and easy to do that. Um, I'm also with, uh, Dumeril boas and Madagascar ground boas. Um, there's a, another project that the uh, keepers had funded to be able to tell the difference between those two. Nice. So that's another one that, that I'm already have gotten sheds and have been working on. I found some, some pretty cool. There's some that they feel like are, are pure. And then I have one, some sequences from published data from scientists uh, to compare to. And they have some that they thought were crosses and I can see a clear signal in the DNA that, that looks like that's what it's telling me is it's a cross. Um, but I need some more uh, pure doom rolls samples for that. But that's coming in soon. And so that'll be interesting, too. We may have a, a test to be able to tell those two apart. Man, that's awesome. In the event that you somehow end up with some free time to do other things. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had Rob Stone on Snakes and Stogies. Uh, was it last week? No, the week before last. Yeah. And we were talking about Kylobothrus, you know, Puerto Rican boas in particular. And he was talking about how there was a, I guess, a study done on ones in the U.S. hobby because you can't, we don't have access to, to the wild populations. Um, and he was saying that, that the U.S. population, we, everyone thought that it would be diverse, like genetic diversity wise, it was very, very watered down very shrunken you know there wouldn't be a ton of genetic variation between them um but he was saying there was actually just as much diversity than they've seen in the wild is there something is there a way that will there ever be a time that you can do something similar with some of these species like rock pythons uh you know the other stuff like jamaican boas too they haven't done those uh just stuff that's that like we're cut off from getting new stuff in but we can tell how how far down that hole we're, we're getting. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's, there's pretty well set out genetic, um, tests. Like there's something called an inbreeding coefficient and, you know, your, your percent heterozygosity for specific, you know, sequences, things like Mm -hmm. that, um, that you can, you can look at pretty easily and, uh, be able, as long as you can get those wild caught samples to compare to, then yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I like the idea of especially commonly kept species um, like ball pythons, corn snakes, king mm-hmm. snakes. I think it would be great for breeders to be able to um, have some kind of, of uh, inbreeding coefficient available like on their website. Say, hey, you know, we've got our breeders tested. This is our inbreeding coefficient. And that would be a way for people that have work to make sure that they're outbreeding and keeping their, their animals, um, you know, having hybrid vigor that they would get, you know, some, some way to advertise that to their customers. Yeah. Cause that, that could definitely be, you know, a concern to, you know, some people, you know, if like, if you want to get a pair from somebody, you know, it would be nice to know like, okay, these are genetically outcrossed enough to get a pair and be okay to breed that pair together, you know, from the same yeah. clutch, you know, versus, uh, this is pretty, pretty close to home, you know? And so that, yeah, that would be, that's amazing. 
Yeah, and that's something indigo breeders have been doing for a while. Yeah. They actually yeah. worked with another <laughs> um, genetic testing uh, business and got a test up and, and running. Uh, it sounds like kind of it's a really long lag that's something i would also like to help as an identity test for indigos but they found that to be really important to to do that identity test and then when they go to do their breedings they make sure they have animals that are as genetically diverse as possible yeah. to avoid breeding you know the, their offspring having different inbreeding problems mm -hmm. right as far as that that test for the the inbreeding how does that work do you have to have sheds from from other from the parents to like how do you how do you know how much something is inbred in so what what they would what they would usually do is they're going to test all the adults they have and then they would just breed the ones together that are the most different um, but the other way you can look at it is there could be some sequence we would we would focus on and you would sequence that in an individual or, you know, multiple locations. Um, and then you would say, okay, what's the percent heterozygosity? And so a really common test, I think this is how the, the indigo test worked. They use microsatellites. So they're just these highly variable genetic markers throughout the genome. I think they had 15 or 17 of them. And so then you would get a, like a percent uh, heterozygosity and the more heterozygous they are, that means the more outbred they are. Okay. Now, having seen all these, all the, you know, all the samples and stuff that you've, you've done, especially with ball pythons, is it, is it safe to say that a, a large percentage of the morphs and stuff that we have in the hobby are, are pretty, pretty deep in that inbred sort of category? Um, I haven't, haven't really looked at the inbreeding with ball pythons. I do know um, back in the day for my dissertation, I did some sequencing in ball pythons and carpet pythons. And specifically, I was looking to see if I could show two snakes coming out of the same egg, whether they were monozygotic twins or you know, whether they were identical mm -hmm. twins or fraternal twins. And from that, I was able to be the first to have some non-avian reptile and, well, I guess, uh, turtles they've shown twinning and um, identical twinning. But this is the, the first time outside of birds and, and turtles where we had some, some uh, monozygotic twinning. So I was able to show they were identical twins. Um, but from that, I did have some, some samples from granite carpet pythons. And those definitely got heavily inbred. Yeah. That's exact. That was the exact, ex, the exact example I was going to use for inbreeding. Yeah. Cause I feel like that is like the perfect example of too yeah. much inbreeding. Like I, I used to keep, uh, you know, I had a head you granite and a granite. I had a visual and I had a head and. I, Hopefully maybe, your head was the female. Uh, no, actually the head was a male and the visual <laughs> was a female. Yeah. I don't have Dang either it. of them anymore, but it was, they were weird and nobody like believes me, but like, I'm telling you, they were weird snakes. Like their immune systems didn't seem as strong. They were, foil hats on. they were just, <laughs> they were odd, you know, and I didn't say much about it, you know, but they just seemed more 
fragile. I don't, I don't yeah. know, you know, but like I've seen some messed up granites that act like that act like jaguars, you know, and it's I, I don't know. I'm not granites. Granites are a perfect example of way too much inbreeding. They got some really weird. Yeah, but it would be interesting now that it's been because that was in 2011. It would be interesting right. to get some samples, especially from breeders that are specifically outbred and, and yeah. made granites and see if they've been able to improve that. And, yeah, I, and my it, sample size was really small. There's right. just a few that I looked at were, were very homozygous, very heavily inbred. Yeah. I know a lot of people I've been working on the granite gene cause it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful mutation. I, yeah. I love it, but you know, it was, but I know a lot of people have been, you know, working on outcrossing that and you have some very healthy granites. Now, nobody attacked me for saying, I think granites are kind of weird. That was just my personal mm -hmm. experience, but yeah, no. That's well, I only had one het female and a het male, and she only got pregnant one time, and she got egg bound, and I think that oh, she ended up getting damn. some kind of infection. I was able to get the eggs out safely, but I think in the process she must have had some kind of a tear. But within a few days she died. So mm -hmm. that's unfortunate. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. So I just, oh, go ahead. I just I asked about the ball pythons just because I'm always wondering. You know, I'm not a ball python guy. I will never really claim to be. I have I have no clue what I'm looking at half the time with those things. <laughs> but I, with the amount of of mutations and combinations and stuff now, it just I've always every time I see some at shows and stuff, I just wonder. You know how much of that is a result of of that just folding the genes with each other you know back bring, and forth bring yeah. them back because that's what everybody does you know for these hets and stuff and it's because i can only imagine there's so much more of it with these recessive mutations because that's what people do they get heads yeah. and they bring them right back to the parents or siblings and to try and get more and then you just produce more and more and more from siblings back to parents and then you what know do with the birds and yeah, but see, that's again, that's like a first or second generation thing, yeah. you know. Like if you do it, I'm not worried about. Yeah, you know, if you do it for a couple that. generations yeah. and outcross, you, you know, you'd probably be fine. But like if you just breed siblings to siblings and back to parents for, for ten for ten years straight, like, and then you're curious why these things are coming out all screwed up it's like I, mean, I don't know what to tell you dude like if you go have a baby with your cousin it's not gonna work out it's a little different you know like i know it's different <laughs> it's but still different. it's i know it's a tad it different i i realize that but all i'm getting at is at a at a point you're gonna hit a wall there's a there's you gotta to be learn a where babies wall. come from jake <laughs> oh my God. well i think with specifically with ball pythons the the vast amount of incomplete dominant traits probably saved a lot of that because yeah people want to get you know three or four or five incomplete dominant traits in with their recessives and so they're forced to outbreed uh, whereas if there were only recessive mutations i think it would be much worse <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's why the the granites got so bad, you know, because people were trying to produce granites so much, but that was one of the only morphs in Popwin carpets, so they just kept breeding them back, you know. And yeah, but it's looking looking a lot better for granites nowadays, though. That's they are good. Crossing, crossing them into a lot of other stuff, and it's yeah, there's some good looking animals out there for sure. So, what about the potential for? doing like a 
the way I described it in the in our outline is the potential for like an open source sort of genetic mapping. Like I mentioned Chondros specifically, but since we're not quite there yet, we can switch it to something that works a little better. Um, like when you get enough samples in over a course of time, being able to look at that and and show, uh, you know, like a like a just a giant map that all these animals came from you know, these other, I, I can't explain it in a way that makes any sense, but <laughs> just a giant like web that just shows all the, where all, a lot of these base animals that a lot of these animals came from. Is that something that's, that you would be able to do? Yeah. Yeah. That's I don't definitely know how much data that, that collects and takes up, but. Yep. Yep. That's definitely doable. <laughs> um, in uh, cause for my dissertation, the department I was in was an animal science department. And so I, I'm familiar with the uh, projects people have done in, in the food animal and, you know, sheep and, and things like that. And, you know, they're able to come up with these that they're able, there's a lot more money in those species to be able to do these genetic yeah. tests. Um, but yeah, they're able to track and figure out like exactly where, like if there's a mutation that's helpful or a mutation that's hurtful, um, they're able to track and figure out where that came from and they know which which sires to not use anymore or which ones you want to make sure you're using because that's a beneficial trait. Um, but yeah, you're, you're able to uh, do that kind of work. That's definitely doable. And I think green trees would be a great species to do yeah. it with because people that keep green Especially trees. the designer stuff. Yeah, they seem to to do. Uh, they seem to have more of a focus on the the lineage and the history. Whereas, if you buy buy a ball python, the chance of getting, you know, information about the specific siren dam or their mm -hmm. ancestors before them is close to zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just I figured designer conjures would be perfect for it because there's a lot of the sort of the early designer animals they were the founders for so much of what we have now. And so it'd be cool to be able to look at a map and be like, I have this animal from this pairing that had, you know, a John Irby animal in it, like one that I have from Luke and being able to trace that one back to the grandparents and then finding out someone else across the country has something that was also from, you know, the original base pairings and stuff like that. I just, it mm. seems to me like there's, that, there's the, enough of those to make it sort of work, but it's not yep. so massive that there's, it's, you're never going to find any sort of links you know yeah yep yeah they, with that indigo project they were able to find some markers that that went along with lineages and so there's specific markers they'd see like oh i know that came from you know that sire five generations back um so yeah that you just have to start getting some of these this testing done and get kind of a database started to get put together for that species or that group or whatever and you you'll be able to start telling some of those things which is pretty fun mm -hmm. nice that is one of the things i love about chondros is just that there's no other group in in herpeticulture that i think takes as meticulous care and notes of lineage as the chondro people do yeah that's that's great i love seeing that for sure well with all this going on you know and all the you know different things you've got going with uh, rare genetics do you do you do any captive keeping yourself? Yes, yeah. So I listened to one of your recent episodes. I saw it had king snakes in the title. It was a professor from 
Oh, West that, Virginia. The crawdaddy. Yeah, yeah, that was last week. Yeah, yeah. I, I never heard, I've never thought about keeping Nerodia, and I've definitely never heard anyone talk about keeping Nerodia. <laughs> that was super interesting. Man, nice. they're making was, a they're, they're making a comeback. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've I've caught them now that I live here in Virginia. I've seen them, and I, I'm one of those people that dives into the water catching them. Yeah, man. Because uh, I cat try to catch pretty much it. The the one snake that I don't go after are garter snakes, just because I've gotten musked by lots of garter snakes since i was like five <laughs> years old so i i am not as interested and excited to see garters anymore just because i did lots of times growing up but mm. the nerodia are new for me i didn't have those in utah so now that yeah. i'm in virginia i i chase them down but yeah that was pretty interesting hearing that um but the the colubrids that i keep i have hondurans now i've had gray bands in the past and i've had speckled kings um, I think that's probably it for colubrids for me. Um, but yeah, I've got like 10 or 12 um, juvenile to adult. I got my first, I guess we had what, three or four clutches of Hondurans this year. Nice. Um, so those are, those are pretty fun. Uh, I just keep them in the bottom of the, the rack uh, where I have the ball pythons. So I mostly have ball pythons now. Okay. Um, I've kept Angolans, kept inbred Angolans and blackheads and Womas. Um, I've obviously had, mo- you know, many of the carpet pythons. Mm-hmm. I didn't ever breed any brettles. Uh, Justin produced all of those when we were working together. Um, but yeah, I've uh, kept several different python species. Um, but yeah, right now it's just ball pythons and then the Hondurans. And uh, I I can tell you that light cycle is not needed for the Hondurans to go nor yeah. is much of a temperature <laughs> difference i literally just kept them in the bottom like two slots of my mm-hmm. my racks that the ball pythons were in and did nothing different i still fed them you know here and there through the cooler times and uh i had they're in a room with no windows and so there's only light when i'm in there other than right. that it's dark and they they cycled with just fine so for what that's worth nice so do you with having you know your own captive animals do you use them towards any of like your testing and stuff or do you have animals that you got in mind specifically for rare genetics um not not really gotten any uh specifically for you know to be able to have a source i thankfully have been doing this for so long and gone to a few carpet fests and you know, lots of reptile shows. Uh, whenever I need sheds from various species, I know who to talk to. Yeah, so, yeah for sure. So I can get sheds pretty easy. Um, but I, I definitely have like uh, all of the colubrids that I hatched out this year. I, I kind of popped them a little bit. I popped tons of pythons, but very few car, uh, um, colubrids. Mm-hmm. And so I did a genetic test on all those just to make sure. And it seems like I can pop okay with colubrids too, but I'll probably keep running the genetic test because it's so easy for me to do yeah um, but uh now that i have this het pied and het lavender albino test and ball pythons i went through and and got samples from all of my well not all but uh about now it's probably 30 or 40 of my animals that are either pied or het pied and mm-hmm. ran all of those to make sure that test is working properly and i had some possets i was able to prove out and i know i've got some animals that are worth about two or three times more now that I know they are het pied. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Terry Burwell used the, the testing for the cyan he got from me. 
Oh, which okay. I love because it then confirmed that I actually did pop correctly and that I yeah, you did actually pair. get a pair. So nice. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those those in particular, man, like I've, I talked to guys over in Europe after I hatched them. I'm like, how do you like, how do y'all sex these things? He's like, yeah, we just pop them. I'm like, dude, if, if I pop this, I'm going to break this damn thing. That's like, how it's I feel so about tiny. like the little baby corn. And he man, was like, no, nah, like... man, it's cool. He's like, They're, they they handle it fine. I was like, what? That's, I mean, what, sure that's enough, how I feel about like Chris told me like with uh, like paint chat with all his baby corns, yeah. he just pops them. And I'm yeah. like, dude, I wouldn't pop this thing like after it's had 10 meals and you sent it to me. Like I've this gotten, is tiny. I forced myself to start doing it and like trying to get better at it within the last year or two. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it, it seems like between that and sort of the, um, you know, the visual shed, deal that Stu Tennyson is talking yeah, about uh, yeah. with the older animals but I've gotten better at it and it was because I forced I was like all right I got to learn how to do this yeah. you know I've tried probing in the past I'm, I I don't like really probing. don't like doing it it makes yeah, me nervous me um but the popping thing you know especially if they're like fresh out the egg it's I I figured out the right amount of pressure and and, and that kind of thing yeah. so and you have to put practice, you have but, to put a weird amount of pressure into it like an uncomfy amount of squeezing you know i've got i got good at I it with carpet it's all about the roll yeah it's all about it's all about the roll you get yeah. you know with my i did it with both carpets but i did the same thing it was like the day they hatched while i was separating them i was popping them while i separated because that's always what i've heard the day they hatched it's easier to do it you know and, especially with carpets they're less yeah. likely to bite you right out of the yeah egg. <laughs> yeah so i would, did all that with all mine and this I don't, as far as accuracy, nobody's bred anything I produce. So I you know, can't say that I've been 100% accurate, but I'm pretty sure I only sold males my first clutch. And then this one I haven't sold. No, Billy got a female for my first clutch. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty much only sold males. So practice makes perfect. You just have to be gentle. But the male, that's, the that's males all. are easy. You know what I mean? Like if you sell somebody a male, you know it's a male. You know, it's the females that you question, you know? And, yeah. It's always, you know, you, you'll get those couple guys every year. They're like, yeah, my entire clutch was female, you know? And then it's like, if Except I got for that, half. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but there's some people, like, I know a guy that was like, he's very good. I've been doing it for years. He's like, dude, this entire clutch was female. He's like, I popped these snakes three times over each. Yeah. It's like nothing changed. He's like, they're all females, you know? I got one ball Python clutch of 10 eggs two years ago and all 10 were female. That's the only no time way. I've had that many. And they, that's the same thing. I popped them three times. I usually pop with ball pythons right out of the egg after their first shed. And then either when I sell them or when they're, you know, like six months old or so, if it's a female, obviously if it pops male the first time, I only pop it once, but yeah, right. I, I usually pop them three times and I would say one or two out of a hundred, I get it wrong on the first pop. Uh, I'll think that it's female, but on the second or third pop, it'll pop a pain. Yeah. It happens if you're not careful, you can miss. But yeah, and you but can here also, soon, here soon we'll have tests for that too. And yeah, so it's you know sixteen dollars for one, but if you're gonna send a bunch in, it's eleven dollars if you're doing twenty five or more or twenty six or more. So right. So if it's a species you're not sure about or you don't want to get good at it, you have got got another option. Yeah, for sure. Even just for confirmation. Yeah, because yep. that that would be my thing. There's always like, going to be yeah. a bit of doubt in my mind. You could, you could just send the ones in that you yeah. didn't get to pop. Now, the ones you just, get to pop, don't worry about it. The ones you didn't get to pop, send them in and make sure they're actually female. 
or just send in the ones that you think are females. You know what I mean? You got to yep. cut to 10 and you have four that you <laughs> think are females. Just verify those four. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, you know, it's easy to, you know, and like even with baby carpets, man, it was weird. Like popping those, you know, you had, you had, you have to know what you're looking at because it's not, the males aren't prominent. It's literally two red dots that you see. It's not like you have these two hemipenes that evert out and it's obvious as all get out. It's They're literally just, well it's just two little red dots that come out and you, yeah. you gotta know what you're looking at. Cause you can barely see it between your fingers as it is, you know, but yeah, no, that's, it'll be very, very helpful going forward. I'll, I'll do that for females. Heck I'll send in skins and make sure I would do that all day. It's kind of nice to know when they're newborn instead of three years later and find out you got it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I tell you, nothing nothing would make me feel worse than sending somebody a labeled female that was male. You know, that's yeah. happened to several of my buddies. Like, man, I raised this thing for three years. I bought it off yeah. this person. And it's a male, you know, like, oh, God. Trust but verify. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and One of yeah. my fun memories was i had a killer uh irian from yasser it was super nice male oh yeah um and uh good night buddy <laughs> my son's going to bed <laughs> <laughs> um so this is a super nice male that i got from yasser years and years ago probably like 2005 or something like that it was like so light and bright lavender and orange really cool male and there's someone on the forums that had a female. And so they sent it, sent the female to me for a breeding loan. And I came in the next day after I paired them together. And that, that big old female had a nice giant peen that was trying to get that. Oh, my male. Oh, with. <laughs> so oh man. Sorry, buddy. It's a big old male that was trying to force his way onto my male. And so oh, then I no. separated them and sent it back. <laughs> it's like they were cellmates. Yeah. <laughs> well, that could that could have gone much worse if they started. It started it's to true. or something. It's true. Yeah. At least it was love and not not fighting. Yeah, because that male. <laughs> male said one way or the other, it's happening. <laughs> We're getting something out of this. <laughs> Dude, man. Well, uh, yeah. No, that's it's so unfortunate. I had a buddy that had a higher end project. I think I believe it was an, an exantic pop one part project, and he raised up a female for years and turned out to be male and it was like oh man that's that's yeah. a real that's a real kick in the nuts wow that's a bummer and yeah. you know here pretty quick just less than 20 bucks you can find out and if you're doing a bunch closer to 10 bucks you can find yeah. out how yeah, long does nice it take easy. to do a, like a single sample like you get a shed start to finish until you have results what's the like how long does it usually take you to do those the turnaround time not even the turnaround just like the sample itself, oh. like testing that. Yeah. So, um, when I get samples in, I'll sit down once I've got a group of at least 20 or so most, most of the time it'll be 20 to 50 that I'll sit down and I, uh, have to carefully with, uh, tweezers pull off that little small piece, put it into a little tiny PCR tube. And then I flame sterilize, go to the next one. So it's pretty fast getting the, the sample in the tube setting up and then once i've got those 20 to 50 all in tubes then i'll move to the pcr and i'll well actually i have to extract first and then pcr um, but anyway so like if i if you say like a group of 20 samples um i can usually have the the shed prepared and the dna extracted and the pcr done 
and then results from start to finish. If I was doing a group of 20 straight through, which with a full-time job and four kids that rarely happens straight through, but <laughs> right. um, probably four or five hours if I was okay. focused just on that. Okay. Hmm. But there's a lot of fixed costs and fixed, you know, amount of time, whether I do one sample or 20, right. It's mm -hmm. only going to take me a little more time to do 20 than it would to do one. And so I, I pretty much always batch them because it's just mm -hmm. not yeah. efficient at all to run, a, 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 you know, less than 10. It's kind of a waste of time. Yeah, yeah that, makes that, sense. that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Have you done anything with the Hondurans? Because I know if I recall, there's some sort of, confusion or consternation about how legit the hondurans we have in the hobby are is there yeah yeah the, they there? talk about them as as being hobby hondurans <laughs> which just means you don't know for sure what they are but we call them hondurans um <laughs> i i've just done sex determination that would be a fun test um i've got as far as king snakes go actually yeah i think they are king snakes there's one breeder that sent me probably five or six hundred sheds Holy. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> it would be a pretty fun project. It just takes time and money. Um, I want the but, results on my desk by Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> we could learn a lot about those king snake species that, that he sent and, and, you know, with the information of where mm -hmm. he got individuals and, you know, different, different sources and, and to see what, what the uh, population structure is like in the, in the hobby. I would love to do projects like that. Um, I just, yeah that there has to be um some some way to be able to focus on that time wise and i can't do it right now but that's something i would love to do in the future I, I another thing i'm interested in doing is figuring out a way to have like a a scientific journal but it's specifically for uh captive bred reptiles instead of right cool. now really if you want to submit to a scientific journal they're they're not really captive bred focused, mm -hmm. uh, but like if you look in cattle or uh, um, chickens or whatever, there are journals that are for these, you know, animals that are, that are raised in captivity. So it's not something new to science to have journals from captive bred species. It's just not, nobody's done that with reptiles yet. And mm -hmm. I'd love to do that. And, if we do that, maybe we would be able to get some more studies like that done because people would know it would get to be published. People would know about it and be able to see that and, and people would refer to it. Also be a way to, to promote your, your business if you're taking part in those kinds of projects. Um, that might be a way to, to get people uh, more interested and get some more money to be able to do projects like that. I would mm -hmm. love that. Mm. Nice. How similar is the testing that you do to something? So when I ask this, I have the, the rhino rats in mind. You know, there's that new species, uh, the Heinonensis. The DNA work that they do on those, is that similar to what, like testing-wise, is it the same, similar to what you do or is it a different? Probably. Um, it's probably similar to some of the stuff uh, that I've done. Um, I, I, I'm not familiar with that specific, like that, yeah. that literature. Yeah. Um, but most of the time what's happening is they're looking at a, a, a mitochondrial gene or two, and mm -hmm. then a couple of nuclear genes and they're looking to see, uh, and they, they use, it's really cool. some of the stuff that I did as an undergrad, um, actually on some toad species, but they're usually using a molecular clock, however many 
base changes there are between the two groups they're comparing to figure out whether they're different species or different subspecies. Um, they'll see how many base changes there are and they have other information to kind of put into this software and it will will give you these trees and tell you, you know, the likely amount of time that these two groups have, if they've been separated, if they have right. been separated, how much time there's been. Um, so yeah, a lot of that is, is you just, have to find these regions of the DNA, specific regions that, that we have some information about how frequent we would expect there to be mm -hmm. mutations. And then that you can use that kind of like carbon dating for rocks and things yeah. like, you know, carbon, carbon containing things. It's the same thing in the DNA. There are certain parts of the genome and the mitochondrial genome, the nuclear genome that we can look at. And, and that's kind of like a clock that we can have an idea how, how distantly related something is. And are, is it common for people to use both mitochondrial and nuclear? Or? In, in studies like that, that's pretty okay. common that they would have some mitochondrial data. Because I've heard there's some debate between the, you know, whether one is better than the other. One indicates some like nuclear being a better indicator over mitochondrial, but I don't, I'm not familiar with them enough to really, to know either way, but <clears throat> Nope, you're muted. We can't hear you. Doc! Can you hear us? You're muted. We can't hear you. You're muted. Nope. Nope. Womp womp. Well, it says your, your little microphone by your name has the mute, mute button on himself. it. Oh. I can't unmute him. You're you muted yourselves. Your mic isn't connected. It says. <laughs> Nothing. No. If you look on your little icon down below, there's a little microphone button there. Hey, there, there you go. Here we go. I wasn't even moving. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. It's the internet. Now I don't remember what we were talking about. Oh, yeah. So the, the mitochondrial DNA, mm -hmm. um, the biggest difference between mitochondria and nuclear is the mitochondria come from the egg. And so is only a genetic um, uh, contribution from the mom, whereas okay. the nuclear DNA, there's the sperm and the egg came together. So you have genetic information from the mom and the dad and so the mitochondrial dna is less likely to have changes over time because um, there's no crossing over there's no segregation um, it's all just you know copied down from that ma maternal uh ancestry okay that makes Very sense cool. Oh, let's, what else? What else we got on this? Uh... I feel like we probably asked you this on the first time we had you on, but what species do you receive the most of? Um, definitely the the test I run the most is the colubid sex determination test and mm -hmm. corn snakes. I get truckloads of corn snake samples coming in. Uh, thank you to all of you corn snake keepers, and uh, they seem to spread the word and on social media let people know. Um, and yeah, we get lots of corn snake snake samples coming in. What about how often are you getting venomous samples? Um, I would say 
compared to colubrids, maybe one out of 50, one out of 70, something like oh, that. Wow. So much, much less common. I feel like that you're, what you do is almost most beneficial for venomous keepers, yeah, no for venomous breeders. <laughs> I think like, so. I would, man. I I don't know how. I mean, you could. I guess there's always tubing, and you can pop doing that. But man, that oh, geesh, no way, man. I would, yeah, I don't know. If I'd it's be sending everything your way. <laughs> I don't know if it's because there's just a lot less people keeping venomous, or if right. they're not as worried about what the sex is. I I don't know, but yeah, yeah, we don't get very many. And it seems like for everybody that keeps venomous there's even less that breed venomous yeah you know, i feel like there's yeah. plenty there's plenty of people that have customer base just shrinks know, the further down you go. yeah you know but there's plenty of people that have their little atheris or you know their squams little rattlesnake copperhead here and there but you know there's not that many people breeding those things so you know the need for it i guess wouldn't be as as high in, in that in that regard so yeah. But still, still, either way, you know, if, you know, as that progresses, you know, and people are breeding more venomous in the future, that's, that would be a huge tool. Yep. Cool. It's nice to not have to touch and, and poke and prod. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's uh... less skin to skin contact, the better. Yep. Not to some people though. I'm sure. There's plenty of guys out there that would stick their finger right up at King Cobra's butthole. Very <laughs> good. Jesus. What about crocodilians? That's interesting. Um, are they temperature? De they're temperature dependent sex determination, aren't they? I don't know if all of them are, but I know alligators are. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I know most are, but you can still hit like that right in between and try and get like a half and half type ratio type deal. Yeah. So as as far as a sex determination test from DNA, if it's temperature dependent. Then there's nothing in the DNA to tell you sex. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. It's all develop. It's all uh, dependent on the environment, and so species okay. that are temperature dependent, we wouldn't have anything. Even bearded dragons, um, they have a very interesting phenomenon where if you incubate the eggs at a higher temperature, that forces them to be one sex. I think I think it's male. I can't remember for sure. Mm -hmm. um, at a at a lower kind of normal temperature, you'll get. Uh, genetic sex determination and so there is you know sex chromosomes and genetic sex determination but if you cook the eggs warm enough they actually just end up being one sex and so mm -hmm. i still would be very hesitant to uh <laughs> do a sex determination test for bearded dragons even though they are they do have sex chromosomes but if you have the environment a certain way then that test is no good hmm. and are you aiming for this to at some point be full-time uh, it, it'd be fun. Um, you know, I, I like my full-time job. It's a good job. I like who I work with. Um, but yeah, I mean, if there is enough, enough of these projects take off enough things going on, uh, I could see it become a full-time thing. That, that would be fun too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And have you, have you worked with Warren on anything? Oh, we've talked about, uh, things several times. Okay. I've, I've never ended up, um, doing a project with him, but yeah, he, certainly is thinking about similar things mm -hmm. all the time <laughs> he's more boa minded i'm more yeah. python minded but but yeah we definitely have a lot of similarities uh, the things that we spend our times think time thinking about <laughs> yeah 
Man, I wouldn't I wouldn't even want to know all the things us reptile keepers think about on a daily basis. <laughs> all the crap that goes through our heads 24/7. It's yeah. Brumation's been heavy on my mind lately, man, after all the conversations we've had about it, you know, with with Zach and stuff, not even on the show, but last like, you know, week, in the messages and stuff. Yeah. It's like I'm constantly wondering. You know, I I was talking to my buddy Gabe Schuler um just Yesterday, he sent me a picture. He found a cottonmouth, and it was like 38 degrees out. That's and crazy. I'm like, and I told him, I was like, dude, I was like, I'm the more of that kind of stuff I see, the more I'm convinced that the stuff we have here locally truly does not go down for any considerable extended amount of time. And that's you know? exactly why, like, when last <laughs> week, when Doc said the whole like going about these southeastern colubrids more like we breed carpets. Mm-hmm. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh, my God, like that actually makes perfect sense. You know, maybe drop them a little bit more than a carpet needs to at night, you know, but the the idea of cooling them down at night and bringing them back, bringing them back up during the day. I mean, that's exactly what we go through, you know, especially, you know, here mm-hmm. here in Beaufort. There'll be plenty of nights where it'll get down to, you know, 40, you know, low 50 degrees. But then the next day it's 80 you know, or during the day it's 80 or seven high seventies, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a great time to go find snakes, you know? So it's, well, even then, I mean, given the last couple of December's, you know, it's been freakishly warm, Yeah. you know, maybe they don't need a full two months or three months, you know, maybe you can just do January and, yeah, warm them that, up and they, you know, I still think they'd breed regardless, like corns, especially <laughs> what we have here. I feel like it's, it's, it's probably close to like what you have with your Hondurans where you really don't have to do much of right. anything. Yeah, um, to make something happen, but and I think food cycling would play a quite the role in them as well. Like you said, feeding more minimal versus you know, and, and that's the thing. I think if more people followed a natural cycle of, you know, winter very minimal feeding, springtime hit them with a bunch of little stuff, summer go to regular, fall start to cut it back, winter cut them off. You know, like I yeah. think I think if more people followed that progression of a natural food cycle, I think that would play a much bigger role than we realize. You know, cuz I so yeah. I swear by food cycling with carpets. I've bred carpets, I didn't change temperatures at all other than natural drops in a room during the winter, you know, but I yeah. cut them off I cut them off of food during the winter. So it's, you know, have have you all ever been on Bob Applegate's website? Nah. If I have, it's been a really long time. Yeah, long. As long as he's still got it up, it's definitely worth looking at to see. You know, it's kind of in the early early days, and uh, there's a lot of really cool information. He did a lot of um, testing male sperm. He had a he figured out a way to get a cheap microscope uh, okay and so yeah. he'd look at sperm motility and and he kind of i think he was one of the ones that that played around with the the brumation different brumation conditions um, but he had at least the last time i was on there two or three years ago he still had all that information up and and uh, thinking about it back in you know i don't remember if it was the 80s or when it was it was a it was a while back and he's got these uh this data where he's got clutch sizes by the different species he had bred and mm-hmm. the first clutch versus the second and third in a year and all this stuff. He's got a lot of, of pretty interesting information. And especially if you know, it's coming from so far back. And we used to, when I was in Utah, we would go to the Anaheim show. And so I got to meet Bob several times and it's, it's cool to 
hear those stories from from people that were doing it you know in the early early days and uh i think that it's been enough time that if you spend some time on that website there might be some things there that you know people 20 years ago were talking about but mm -hmm. kind of comes full circle again <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. yeah do you do any herping up there I haven't done very much. Um, I did quite a bit when I was in Utah. Um, I spent a summer in Arizona. That was, that was real. I saw 55 rattlesnakes in one month. Oh, wow. I got to, uh, one day we were on a hike. So this is in the Chiricahuas. So this is Southeastern Arizona, not far from the Mexico and New Mexico borders. And we're at a fairly high elevation, uh, right where the Chiricahua desert museum or their, uh, research station there it's not far from bob ashley's um, desert museum i think is it the sonoran desert museum i can't remember but anyway he's close by there but this research station uh, where we were at we we're high enough elevation that it never really got much above 85 degrees and we'd drive five minutes down on the flats and be 115 <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. But anyway, one, one day we were out on a hike at this higher elevation and uh, we saw this, uh, this uh, black tailed rattlesnake kind of mm. back under a rock. And we thought, Hey, you know, that's cool. We kind of shined a light in there and checked the snake out. And then the next day we were walking through that area again and we still saw that same animal under the rock. We're like, okay, let's hook it out. Let's get some pictures. You know, it's a sign. We, we see this animal twice. We've got to get some pictures. And so we hook it out. And uh, as we're doing that, there's some babies that haven't had their shed yet. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was a mom with her, with her babies that hadn't even had their first shed yet. And I was down there on my hands and knees scooping her out of there. And I realized that after I had gotten her and two or three babies out, that there was one about three inches from my head oh. up on the side. <laughs> and it had just stayed coiled up. It hadn't moved. I didn't even see it. And I wasn't even expecting babies. Mm -hmm. But after I had scooped a few out, I kind of looked around and there was one, you know, right by my face. <laughs> That's crazy. But that was man. that was a really cool experience. Um, another really amazing thing that happened. Um, oh man, if I'm going to be, so Harry Green had, uh, a, uh, research, uh, project going on with blacktails and Dave, I think it was Dave Hardy was the, the gentleman's name. He was a retired anesthesiologist. And so he had implanted, uh, radio trackers in, I think it was 10 or 11 blacktail rattlesnakes. And so we got to go out one day with Harry Green <laughs> and, uh, and Dave Hardy, to do That's this awesome. radio telemetry and uh i did i did so, that with eastern diamondbacks with a oh, did you mine. yes oh my god That's it's awesome. incredible yeah so we we're out walking and it's pinging and it's getting getting more you know <laughs> close together and yeah. we kind of come up over this ridge and i can see a dead bunny in a bush and so we oh, got to watch what? the blacktail scent trail it find it eat it Harry Green sat down immediately and this is, you know, a world famous Viper mm -hmm. <laughs> biologist, but you could tell why he's good at his job. Like he sat down immediately, got a stopwatch out. And he said, you guys tell me when you see things, I'm going to click this. And he timed, you know, how long it took to scent trail, how far that was, how long it took to swallow the head. The, you know, he had all this very detailed wow. information about how that feeding went. And Dave Hardy, I think at that time he said he'd been doing it for seven or eight or nine years and he'd, 
never seen one actually eat and we got to be there when that happened that's incredible man that was fun oh yeah i definitely God. love being in the field i just mm-hmm. haven't done it much and the last time i was on with you guys i said i need to come down your way and, and do some herping where you're at uh, those are species that i've never seen so that would be really fun yeah man i could i can get you on quite a quite a bit of stuff out here if you come come on the right time of year now, my uh, youngest kid, I, I think probably the biggest thing moving across the country and having young kids, but my youngest now, he's eight and a half. So here pretty soon, I, I think uh, he could even come out with me. And there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, we've we've been kind of close by there when we go to the beach, um, but not quite that far south yeah. very mm-hmm. often. We went drove down to Daytona a couple of times. So there we've gone go. through there. But yeah, I need to make that happen. So if I do reach out to you randomly, that's probably why I'm probably going to ask if I can go herping with you. <laughs> yeah, man, that's I'm always I'm all for it. I tell anybody, man, if you want to come down this way, let's go. Let's go. I got, you know, obviously I don't I never make promises of like, oh, man, I'll get you on everything, you know, you but like, foot I can bag. I can promise to take you places that I have found a lot of stuff. So that's well, that's a, that's an experienced herper is someone that knows they can't promise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, every year I say I'm going to get out and do and, and hurt more and I never do. But this year. I'm making, I'm going to make a serious effort to make it happen this year. I'm dragging you. Cause last <laughs> year, last year I got back into, cause like I, I had to, you kinda, did a lot of cruising last year. Well, that's, I did a lot of cruising late last year. That's the thing. I didn't get to go during the springtime when it's optimal because of my life, but my life got different later on in Things the year much easier when you're single <laughs> your schedule clears up clears clears up a lot faster yeah, it's funny, <laughs> funny how that worked um but yeah no so i i didn't get out i didn't get to do a lot of herping until later in in the year so it was pretty hot by the time i got out but then i did a lot through the fall and but even during during those hot days man when it was raining oh i was out I was yeah. out and there was one time I tried not to go in the middle of the rain, but there's one time it, it was the only thing I hadn't tried yet to really see, you know, going during a storm and we had a big rainstorm coming through. I was like, you know what? I'm going to hit the road. Well, I went out in the middle of the pouring rain and I saw more snakes that night than I ever did, you know, Interesting. Any, other, any other night while it was that hot, you know, springtime it's a completely yeah. different story, but during the hot months, man, when it rains, it's weird. I also found doing that though. I found out ribbon snakes love rain. Huh. I I never would have known that, but the only times that I have found ribbons on my road, I've never seen one. Around they here. have been in substantial numbers. I mean, I found ten to twelve of them, you know, wow. and but they were only while it was raining, and it was crazy because the, most of them would be on the road like telescoping, like they'd be up, have their heads up, just in the middle of the road, and the rain it was just pouring down rain. It was the weirdest thing you know but it's the only time i found them is in the porn ring hmm. interesting i definitely wouldn't have guessed that yeah i know it was it was odd but yeah man i'd imagine it's it's hard to go from herping in utah to virginia it's definitely yeah. different we have pretty much zero turtles and zero um zero uh salamanders in utah <laughs> oh yeah and here there's truckloads of both so mm-hmm. that's that's been fun to see some some animals i wasn't used to seeing uh, there's a place that we go um 
hiking around there's some a pond and it's kind of a little bit higher elevation but certainly not the kind of mountains that i was used to in utah but right some elevation change and uh yeah i mean that's almost every time we see salamanders and newts and so that's pretty fun and and at least a, a dozen or a couple dozen turtles i always geek anytime i found salamanders i don't find them often it has not been a very common occurrence but i found a couple of marbled salamanders marbles are cool in my slimies those are the ones that are like touched them once made that mistake don't have to make it again (laughs) marbles marbles are just amazing though oh my god they're so pretty i remember there was one time i was working on the plantation and i was flipping over some logs doing something there's a little marbled salamander sitting there and I just freaked the heck out, you know, was geeking out about this thing. And my coworkers like, dude, we're working like, shut up about the salamander, <laughs> do your job. Like, okay, sorry. But nerd. Yeah. Huge nerd. But yeah, in Utah, we don't get like the, the cover flipping, like, I mean, flipping rocks and flipping logs, like you'll see some stuff in Utah, but it's nothing like the, you know, Midwest and East coast where you can flip a, a tin, you know, a piece of tin and see mm-hmm. three or four snakes under it. I, I never had that happen in Utah. Yeah. It's I, I've never had much luck flipping. Like I I'll go through the woods and I'll, you know, but I've never, once I have property, because I eventually want to get property, I'm going to lay tin out pretty much everywhere I can, you know, but I, I don't, I don't have a lot of like flipboards, you know, around areas, you know, because here, that's why like other places confuse me with how people herp, you know, people go out and be like, yeah, I've got flipboards here, here, here. If you do that here, you're going to get shot. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> anywhere you go, if it's just land, it's probably, it's probably a private plantation, you know, and don't want to go on on those like at all so it's literally you have to have private property of your own or you have to have access to where somebody lets you put a bunch of tin trash around it you know (laughs) which is not very common because everybody around here hunts and they don't want you putting trash all over their property so it's it's not a not a common thing that's why you put the border the tin down and then you take leaves and you throw it on top (laughs) no one will notice yeah it's supposed but, to be more enticing for the animals. I really need to try and get back out onto the plantation this year because I found an incredible amount of snakes while I was working out there, and I'm pretty sure my old manager would give me access as long as the owners aren't out there hunting. So. I was going to say, as long uh, as it's not season. Yeah, because uh, the owner, <laughs> the, it's funny, man. That plant, It's a 6,000-acre plantation over, over in Yamasee. It, it's absolutely huge, and the owners are there literally like – a handful of times out of the year for like a week to two weeks to hunt, Wow, you know, and that's it. But they have a full staff tractors, whole nine yards year round work, but they come hand, they come for deer season, turkey season, duck season, dove season and quail. So like they'll come like five times a year, hunt for a week or two and then they're gone, you know? And it's like, this this is your playground, dude. Like that's insane. Yeah, <laughs> they have they have an incredible variety out there. I found some of the prettiest canebrake rattlesnakes you'll ever see. Out uh, on that that'd be awesome. Yeah, they're it, it's amazing. Um, Are you going to Daytona this year? Um, I would like to. I don't know for sure yet. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll go to Tinley in March. Um, Daytona, I would I would like to. I hope we'll make that happen. I think it'll probably happen. Yes. I'd like to go to Tinley eventually. I don't know 
You haven't made it yet, huh? I have. No, I would love to. I want to go to October Tinley because I've heard that's, you know, kind of the bigger bigger one. Yeah. And I would plan it this year, but I'm planning on going. I'm planning a trip to Arizona in September. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to Arizona in September and Chicago in October. So, I mean, you're going to be able to herp in September. That's what we're going for. It's we're going, we're going for a, a seven to 10 day trip of just straight herping. We're probably going to be camping a lot, you know, which to, part of Arizona, um, the Tucson area. Okay, cool. Yeah. And the, I've done a little of, bit around there. Some of the surrounding stuff we're talking about going to the, like the Patagonia mountain mountains and stuff and get to know, see some tigers. Going. Yeah, man. I, Hopefully. there's, so, there's so many things I want to find out there. I've never, I, I say I've never done West herping. I, I used to live in Texas. I was in South Texas granted, Doesn't but count. yeah, I was very South Texas. So it was still South, but you know, West for me, yeah. you know, so I found I've messed, obviously I've been bit by an Aatrox. Um, so I messed with, messed with a lot of Western diamondbacks and some patch noses out there and, yeah, you know, I got a lot of got got to see some some of the more west stuff, but Arizona has always been like the the one far west place that I really yeah. I really want to hurt. So we're gonna we're gonna try and make it happen this year. The other really fun thing that happened in Arizona was I uh, one well, every night we would go out road cruising. That was the main reason we were there. And uh, I went to go take a pee before we were gonna start driving, just off in the weeds. And I see this this red streak moving through the grass. So I got to see a pyro up in the mountains in Arizona. Man, I actually you know talk about going to take a pee and seeing a snake. I was at work one day, and you know I work in the I work outside. You know I inspect uh, construction sites, and I was in a subdivision. I went out down this road to go take a leak. That I knew there was nobody back there, and I walked into the woods. And I was just about to go and there was, I saw a copperhead just like sitting right in front of me. And, and this was the only time that I have understood why people think some snakes chase you. Okay? <laughs> and like, and I, this has never happened to me before. So I saw this copperhead. I was like, oh, okay, like, cool. Like, it was a good size. It was pretty. I was like, okay, I'm going to take a picture. It was really hot out that day. I was surprised it was even out. I kind of bent down a little bit and leaned in to take a picture. And as soon as I leaned in, this thing like projectiled towards me, like almost jumped. It came completely off the ground and towards me. And I took a step back and then it darted off to the side, you know, type deal. But it was a very, very odd, you know, and I was like, now I get it. Like, okay, I can see how somebody who doesn't know snakes (laughs) would think this thing was coming after them. Granted, he came at me, then went to the other way because he panicked, you know, and doesn't want to come at me, you know, but it was very, very odd. I'd be doing the same thing if I was about to get peed on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Probably the number one species I wanted to see in Arizona and didn't was uh, banded rock rattlesnakes. I didn't oh, know. Yeah. Man. I rock I rattles- see them. Rock rattlesnakes are my favorite, man. Out yeah. of all out of all the rattlesnakes, the, the, those are those banded those rocks. Are awesome. Oh my god, I love them. What was I your got favorite to- species to find in Utah. In Utah, um, it, I didn't get to see rattlesnakes very often, and I, I mean, I just kind of love venomous stuff, especially rattlesnakes. And there's only one species in Utah. Well, the the part of Utah I was in. Um, so the the uh, lutosis, uh, well, if it's still called that, <laughs> uh, uh, I haven't followed that over the years. I know it's changed some, but 
um, the Great Basin Rattlesnake. Uh, we saw tons of Pituophis and tons of, of Thamnophis. Um, so, you know, it wasn't usually very exciting to see them. Um, but, yeah, really it probably is the rattlesnakes. Um, I didn't really see them on the roads, but but going out and herping, I definitely would find rubber boas, and that was pretty fun. Yeah. Um, especially if it was like colder temperatures and I wasn't even necessarily going herping or camping or whatever. And it's, you know, 50 degrees and find yeah, a, a rubber was, boa. That was pretty fun. Those yeah. things are cool, man. Yeah, they are. Yeah. It's also, interesting. it's also funny how like herpers from different parts of the U S you know, you say, you know, yeah, we found pituophis and thamnophis. So, you know, that weren't really that exciting. Finding a pituophis, I would lose my mind. Yeah. I, have, I have only ever found, I found one bull snake in Texas. And it was just, I was walking out to a spot to go herping. And this thing was going across the parking lot as I was walking up. And I lost my mind. It was <laughs> awesome. I loved it. But that is the only pituophis I have ever herped. I'm glad I can cross that genus off my list. Yeah. Know, but, well, you'll man. see him in Arizona. I hope so, man. God, we saw a I, decent, I decent one when we were in Texas, but it was... It had been hit by a car mm. fairly soon or before, like soonish after we had mm. come across it. So, man, I rolled this last this last year. This was one of the uh, it's it absolutely sucked. I was this is the first time this has happened to me so like perfectly. I mean, I quote unquote perfect. It, it sucked, but someone. Yeah, I obviously road cruising, you drive pretty slow and on this road that I, I hit, it's gotten a little bit more traffic recently. So that's unfortunate, but I normally kind of just pull off to the side of the road and let people pass me if I see someone coming behind me. So I did, I pulled over, I let somebody go by me and I kept going on my, on my road and not two minutes up, I see something in the road, like flopping around. I'm like, well, what the hell is that? I rode up on it and it was uh Nerodia. It was a banded water snake. And this dude ran like crushed its head, like went right over it. And the thing was like flopping around. I didn't know what was going on at first. I got out and I literally watched it die in front of me. This like, it was right there. And I was like, uh, Oh my God, you have got sucks. kidding me, dude. It, it was depressing. <laughs> yeah. Especially cause I love Nerodia, you know, so that made yeah. me anything like that i hate finding dead snakes man that's nothing nothing worse yeah happens yeah doing that road cruising in arizona that's we found a lot we got to see <laughs> lots of road road killed stuff unfortunately yeah one of the craziest things that happened was there's a little i think it was a long nose snake um, but it was like i don't know eight inches long not not very big and we had seen it on the road. We pulled over, and then the car behind us, we watched oh, it drive uh, directly over it. Like, I saw the tire go over that snake. Like, there's uh, no question in my mind. I personally, this isn't somebody telling me a story. I watched the tire go over that snake. And uh, so we go pick it up. And it did have, like, a little uh, bloody spot on it. But, I mean, it was moving around. Seemed okay. We took it back. We had a... a permit to be able to take any injured or dead um specimens and mm -hmm. so anyway we were able to take it back to the research station and i mean three or four days later we fed it a lizard it ate it it was fine and we let it go <laughs> it was wow. no problem i don't yeah. know if that just happened to be going over like a little bump right before, i mean i don't know how in the world that snake didn't get pulverized but 
it was completely fine. <laughs> I've seen a couple to where like, you know, you could tell it had been hit, you know, because it kind of had like, you could tell it's ribs were crushed in like a certain mm-hmm. spot, but snake was acting relatively normal, you know, and it's amazing. <laughs> They're <laughs> tough suckers. Yeah, they really are. But well, we are yeah. at the hour right and a half mark. Hour and a half. So, uh, where can uh, where can everybody find you if they've been living under a rock and don't know yet? <laughs> um, so the website you had up earlier, raregeneticsinc.com. Uh, that's uh, Rare Genetics Inc. is what what we are on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, those are really the only social media that we have accounts. Not that I'm very active on there, but I think through this year that will change and we'll have a lot more going on. Uh, especially with the uh, the ability to do so much more uh, genomic sequencing and morph sequencing, we'll have a lot more going on. Um, so that's the the best place to find us. And then uh, for the ball python breeding and the Honduran breeding, I have a, another small business. It's uh, um, uh, genetic. Uh, oh, geez, I can't even. I guess it's late <laughs> enough. My my brain's farting. Um, Reptile Genetic Services is what that that business is. So we're on Morph Market with that. So on mostly ball pythons, but we've got a few Hondurans on there. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, we really appreciate you pre- appreciate you coming on. This was a great episode and got a lot of good information out there. Glad to have you back. Yeah, this was a yeah. great update, man. It sounds like you've made a lot of progress since the almost four years ago that we had you on, which me and Justin were talking about that today. How it's crazy. This has almost been going yeah. four years now. And it's fun um, to see you guys still doing it. And yeah. I've had a lot of good shows. That's That's awesome. Thank you. Man. I Thank took you. the time to look up, you know, what public stats they are. And it looks like you've, you've done pretty good, pretty good reviews and number of reviews. And that's, that's really cool. Yeah. Thank you, man. It's been growing. Yeah. We've it's tried our hardest. Far surpassed our expectations. Yeah. I, if you would have said four, four years ago, if you would have told me, Hey, y'all are going to be doing this still in four years and you're going to have thousands of listens and followers. Like, wait, what? <laughs> Awesome, right. man. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Yep. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. This episode was brought to you by blackboxcages.com. We forgot to plug Steve yeah. and Blackbox at the yeah, beginning of the episode. We were anxious to get into it. Uh, so please give them a follow Facebook, Instagram, um, all that good stuff. And Steve Snakeuary, get some venom hot sauce, help support Steve and mm-hmm. his Snakeuary. With relocations, rehabilitation, surrenders, public outreach, all that good stuff. I think Jeff and Kendra actually just bought the whole set. Nice. So I think they're going to be doing a video on that soon. So that'll be cool. And uh, we will see everyone Monday night at 9 p.m. for Snakes and Stogies 107, I think. 107. Good deal. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.